0: your hosts, Brian Fry, John Flack, and Russell Guest,
1: coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. And today, I'm excited because we have my favorite co host, Brian Fry. Brian, how are you? Good evening, everybody. I'm doing well. Another reason I'm excited, Brian, you know what? We brought back dj bryant from the blue velvet episode our number two most downloaded episode i have a feeling our popularity is about to go through the roof on this one dj how are you
2: i'm doing well i don't know about you miss kitty but i certainly feel a whole lot yummier now
1: (laughs) good batman returns reference welcome back dj we got to know you a little bit last time but we got to get to know you a little bit better here you ready to answer some hard-hitting questions yeah let's do it hit hard if it's uh don't worry we'll redact them if uh Oh, yeah, we I, might have to. Yeah, yes. I've
2: got some Russia things to talk about.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's your favorite death scene in a movie?
2: Ooh, so most recently I saw Ghost Ship, which is 2002, and there's an opening scene at a dance party where someone has rigged the cable system to slice through a bunch of people as they dance. And so like you you see the setup for it, the cable kind of the tension builds and then like it cuts across the audience. And there's like these five minutes of silence where people are just standing there, like, what happened? And then they slide apart.
1: (laughs) Is this like a final destination kind of thing? Like where the deaths are over the top? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And so uh, favorite movie wizard or witch?
2: Elvira, Mistress of the Dark.
1: Oh, I like that. Yeah. I had a hard time with this one. I I would go Dumbledore, though. But he'll bend the rules a little, little bit. Brian, how about you? Do you have a favorite wizard or witch?
0: Favorite wizard of all time? I don't know. I I feel like if if we go full circle, it's got to be Gandalf, right?
1: That would be that'd be a reasonable choice. Yeah. So DJ, what movie did you watch? Even though your parents probably didn't want you to see it yet.
2: Boogie Nights, because of Mark Wahlberg's penis, which was actually <laughs> a prosthetic device.
1: I didn't know that. Was it obvious that it was? <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah disappointing i guess i know so sad but there was a lot of sex and nudity so
1: what age were you when you did that
2: oh god this i was definitely an adolescent and this was when hbo was a thing and you secretly watched it in your bedroom (laughs) with the doors locked
0: (laughs) showgirls was my that movie yeah that's a
1: good one okay that makes sense i think mine's gonna be for more violence reasons I, i watched the movie halloween um not for nudity reasons but just because For violence. (laughs) So a little bit more, I guess, a little more innocent. I don't know. A little more bloodthirsty. A little more bloodthirsty. Yeah. Anyway. So what's the last movie you saw, DJ?
2: The last movie I actually saw was um, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, specifically her series where she uh, does the commentary for films. And two in particular was Demonic Toys and Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death.
1: Wow. And so, she, I don't know if you knew this or not, but she came to the Steel City Con uh, not too long know, ago.
2: Though. I didn't get to meet her, though.
1: Okay. Yeah. that's it. For people who don't know, DJ and I are in Pittsburgh here. Uh, we used to be co-workers together, still friends. And uh, Steel City Con is like, uh, would you say it is a B-rate, C-rate, or D-rate Comic Con? I'm
2: going to go B at least, but it's probably a C.
1: It's probably is a C. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be like, we've got Eddie from the Munsters. Hey, remember him? Or That guy from Star Trek. We have
0: Spokon out here, and it's definitely probably CD rated. CD
2: <laughs> for cassette disc.
0: I have I've not been, but one of these days I'll at least have to attempt to people watch.
1: Do give me an example of who attends the Spokan.
0: I I I can't even give you an example. I just I'm aware of it because people come in for. Uh, graphic novels and comic books to the store to take to it to get signed by people I've never heard of. You know, it is what it is.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: At least we have one,
1: right? Absolutely. So Steel City Con or Spocon, maybe someday Retro Movie Roundtable will be big news and have our own booth at the Steel City Con. Today, though, what movie are we going to do, DJ? We're
2: going to do Death Becomes Her.
1: Which is a fun title. Death Becomes Her comes out in 1992... It grosses $58.4 million, placing at 24th on the box office on the year. It comes behind the movie House Sitter, which I believe is also a Goldie Hawn movie. Uh, it's another comedy. And also uh, coming ahead of Unlawful Entry at 25th. If you're wondering what the number one movie that year was, it was Aladdin from Disney. And IMDb does not uh, necessarily think a lot of uh, Death Becomes Her. It only gives it a 65 And Rotten Tomatoes, even crueler. Uh, The critics give it a 52% and the audience gives it a 61%. Uh, DJ, is this fair? It is not
2: fair. This is a great film and they should show some more love.
1: Hey, but don't worry. The awards came to its side and it is an Oscar winner. It won for Best Visual Effects and it was a Golden Globe nominee for Best Actress, Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy uh, for Meryl Streep. And it was a BAFTA winner for all of our British listeners out there. It won uh, for best visual effects as well. So got some hardware, and it made some pretty good money at the box office. That's not a bad showing. Decent, yeah. Yeah. Let's get a little feel for whether you've seen this movie before and your expectations and background. Uh, Brian, why don't you come first here? Have you seen this movie before? And if so, what were your expectations coming in? Uh,
0: I had seen this movie before. I'm certain it was something my aunt and her mother was watching at some point in my childhood. I remember her getting shot in the stomach. I remember it being being vaguely funny. Um, Actually, on second watch, it wasn't as funny as I remembered it, but I'm almost certain I wouldn't have gotten any of the jokes when I watched it the last time. So, I don't know if it was just because other people were uh, laughing or what, but... uh, I guess the best thing to say is instead of saying I've seen it, I have vague impressions before watching it again. Uh,
1: DJ, what about you? Have you seen this movie before? If so, what were your experiences and what was it like coming back to it now?
2: I have definitely seen this movie before, probably too many times. I love it as much now, as much as I did then, and I appreciate it even more so now knowing that it was Robert Zemeckis who did this, who also did some of my other favorite movies growing up, which Mm -hmm. we can probably dive into a bit later.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I'll also say this. uh, When I mentioned I had to watch this to Jess, she was like, oh, my God, I love that movie. And she was like, we're going to watch it right now. So clearly she had seen it before way more recently than me because she was far more familiar with
2: it. She's a keeper. I like her.
1: (laughs) Yep, I agree. (laughs) They've been together for almost as long as I've known them. So, okay, yeah. Yeah. High school sweethearts. For me, I had never seen this movie before. And I wasn't even sure what to think of the title. And honestly, with Meryl Streep being in it, I was thinking we're going into a much more serious movie just because it is Meryl Streep. And um, somehow I didn't even recognize Bruce Willis with the mustache on the cover of the box. And I may have judged this incorrectly off the cover. Uh, So I had passed up on it before. And I don't know what my deal was because I came to it and I really enjoyed this movie. I did not know Robert Zemeckis had done this. And, uh, now that I've seen it, uh, I just rented it on iTunes, but I think I'll, I could likely be picking up a used copy of this at some point. I'm, I'm definitely, I definitely am a fan of this and I would show this to other people. It was a lot of fun is how I would put it.
0: Well, after I mentioned it and Jess lost her mind, I was like, all right, well, I guess we're buying it. So we just bought it on iTunes on the spot.
1: <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> hey, iTunes, those are two endorsements right there. Give us that Apple money those are some endorsements for you like plug Plug. ka-ching
2: ka-ching
1: yeah
0: i mean i bought it on itunes on my macbook (laughs) which also works on my apple television
1: and your iphone (laughs) did you hear that tim cook he's listening he's a big fan so if you haven't already seen death becomes her please do go back and watch it then come back and enjoy the rest of this podcast we'll be back after these messages
3: president donald j trump here from the white house you know america we don't win anymore our podcasts are going over to seas to india they're leaving across the border to mexico they're going to china it's very sad to see really america i win at everything i do and if you want to win too you got to go to itunes stitcher spotify wherever you get your podcast and get the retro movie roundtable an amazing luxurious five-star review and comment tell them how to make the show better and they too will win like i do That's not all we're going to win by going to like the show on Facebook, and Facebook is going to pay for it, believe me. Also, email the show at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Do this, and we will bring great podcasts back to America, like my favorite podcast, the Retro Movie Roundtable. Soon you will see we are winning again, and you are going to win so much you're going to get tired of winning. We're going to win more than Charlie Sheen. Believe me, I know Charlie. He's a very reasonable man and a very good friend of mine.
1: This message was endorsed by President Donald Trump. Welcome back. And once again, we're going to get into spoiling Death Becomes Her. First, let's refresh your memory. If you haven't seen Death Becomes Her lately, we're going to come to your rescue. And DJ, you want to tell people what happens in Death Becomes Her?
2: Definitely. So Death Becomes Her is an American black comedy fantasy film and cult classic directed by Robert Zemeckis and written by David Klope and Martin Donovan. The film is centered around two very strong female leads, Madeline Ashton, played by Meryl Streep, and Helen Sharp, played by Goldie Hawn. Their nicknames for each other are Mad and Hell, and trust me, they are both mad as hell towards one another. (laughs) The film opens in 1978 in New York City on Broadway on the production of Tennessee Williams' Sweet Bird of Youth, which is a story about a faded movie star. Hello, foreshadowing. (laughs) Madeline Ashton is the star of this production, and it is clear from the beginning that she is a diva and doesn't take two spits from anyone else. Helen Sharp has brought her fiancé, a plastic surgeon, Dr. Ernest Minville, played by Bruce Willis, to the play so that he can meet Madeline and so that Helen can see if Ernest can pass what she calls the Madeline Ashton Test. We are told that Helen has lost men in the past to Madeline, and she is determined to see if Ernest will take the bait. Ernest and Madeline meet backstage, and they hit it off very quickly, openly flirting in front of Helen. Ernest is taken by Madeline, and the two wed shortly thereafter. Flash forward seven years to 1985, and Helen has become a cat-obsessed social recluse who has gained a significant amount of weight and has become fixated on Madeline since she stole Ernest from her. Helen is shortly thereafter committed to a psychiatric hospital. Flash forward another seven years to 1992, and Madeline and Ernest are living in Beverly Hills and they are both miserable with their lives together. Ernest has become an alcoholic and has abandoned his previous career as a plastic surgeon and is now working as a reconstructive mortician. And Madeline has become noticeably older and her acting career has all dried up. After receiving an invitation to Helen's book party, Madeline rushes out to her beauty spa to receive a plasma transfusion so that she can look her best around Helen. While at the spa, Madeline is told that there is little that the the spa people can do for her, given her age, and that she is given the contact information for Leslie Von Ruhmann, who specializes in youth rejuvenation. Madeline takes a card and rips it up, thinking it's just a fraud of some sort. Madeline and Ernest attend Helen's book party, and are astounded to find that not only has Helen lost a significant amount of weight, but she is noticeably younger for a 50-year-old woman, and she is drop-dead gorgeous. After the party, Madeline rushes to her younger lover's house, only to find that he is now has a woman his own age and is done seeing Madeline. Tortured by all these developments, Madeline decides to visit Leslie von Rumen, and she ingests a magical elixir which brings back her beauty and her youthful essence. Meanwhile, Helen seduces Ernest and begins convincing him that they should kill Madeline and stage her death to look like a drunk driving accident. <laughs> The two contrive an elaborate plan to accomplish their goal, but things go awry when Ernest loses his temper and kills Madeline by pushing her down the stairs. Upon this, Ernest immediately calls Helen to inform her what happened and asks her to come over immediately to help dispose of the body. While Ernest is still on the phone with Helen, we observe Madeline's corpse in the background as it becomes reanimated. Ernest is freaked out by this development and immediately rushes Madeline to the emergency room where they are informed that she is technically dead but is somehow defying all natural laws. Ernest brings Madeline back home where he begins restoring her with his mortician skills, and while in the process, Helen drops by to help dispose of Madeline's body. The scene is now set for an epic standoff between Madeline and Helen and their sadistic form of bitchcraft between one another. Madeline shoots Helen in the stomach, and when Helen's corpse is reanimated, Madeline realizes that Helen has also taken Leslie Von Ruhmann's potion and that Helen's book, Forever Young, is a crockish. Eventually, the two women forgive one another and their past transgressions and begin plotting how they can keep Ernest around forever to keep them put together, basically. Ernest, meanwhile, has decided that he must leave these two women and that he cannot stay around any longer. Madeline and Helen kidnap Ernest and they take him to Leslie's, where they unsuccessfully try to get him to take the potion. 37 years later, in 2029, Madeline and Helen are sitting at Ernest's funeral. And the end.
1: Well done, well done. Man, that's a good job. This is a silly comedy. There's a proper philosophical point to go with it, though. And I actually liked this. DJ, do you like this movie just because of the fun nature of it? but, uh, Or do you actually uh, enjoy it also for that, like, who wants to live forever? And the fact that vanity is uh, kind of an ugly quality, that which these two characters are kind of obsessed with. And then in the end, uh, particularly as they go into the uh, eulogy scene, like, I thought that's where the movie really drove its point home. Like, I, my my enjoyment of the movie went way up at the end. At the and end. <laughs> it really, it's over the top. So um, talk about that, like the content okay. or like the, uh, the the moral behind the story.
2: So, well, so like you mentioned, like it is a story about the kind of our quest for youth and kind of in a society where we are confronted with so many images of beauty and what it means to be a man or a woman. This is all about kind of, questioning that is like if you could live forever, would you really want to do it, or is it gonna be a really abysmal experience? Um, as a gay man, this is a very pertinent kind of topic still because in our community, like a lot of older gays are shunned. Like once you get past a certain age, it's like no one you're a troll or you're you're something really? less than. Totally, yeah. Huh. huh. So like, you know, I think that's why a lot of gay men love this film because it it is exploring this issue. Furthermore, Gay men tend to have like body dysmorphia issues, eating disorders, things like that. A really? lot of things that are traditionally plague women. Yeah. And then these two characters are quite quite hilarious. Like they're very brassy, brashy women like they don't they don't care like they they are like dead set on like cementing themselves in this life. They're divas. They're divas and and doing it at all costs basically. Literally cement literally. Yes.
1: <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because maybe you've perhaps answered my question because uh, in 2017 Vanity Fair published an article with the 25th uh, anniversary of the film stating that this has become a gay cult classic and a touchstone of the hey. uh, queer community if I may use that term And um, I'll let you, you can uh, but is it, uh, so you're saying that it has to do with uh, the fact that uh, as one gets older they tend to be pushed out Out of the community. Beauty,
2: age. Again, and we we love like bitchy characters like that. Divas, so to speak. Like that is one of our favorite kind of qualities. Like a a woman who knows what she wants and isn't afraid to get it or go after it.
1: Wow. So that fills in several gaps because even I read the article and I couldn't figure it out. And even uh, um, Isabella Rosalini, who's in this movie. Yes. And it was also in the last movie that you came in and talked about with Blue Velvet. So the actors are starting to network, starting to connect. Uh, I don't know what Isabella Rosalini movie you'll talk about next time. I wonder. But um, <laughs> anyway, she she was also taken aback by it. Like she didn't know that this had the status and that it had meant this to so many people. So um, perhaps this is what's conveyed to cult status.
2: And to a previous point, like you mentioned, like Meryl Streep is typically known for more serious roles. Um, Bruce Willis around this time. This was before his Die Hard, and that was kind of like what cemented his career. Like so, these are two roles that are kind of outside of their wheelhouse and puts them in a different like perspective for viewers to see. And I think they do really great at it.
0: I may be the stick checker. This was after Die Hard two.
2: After. Thank you. Okay. So he'd already cemented himself.
0: I'm just going
1: to be the goalie tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Please. (laughs) What about you, Brian? What do you think about the, uh, I guess both the meaning behind the story as well as it's over the top presentation of, uh, it's, it's brand of humor.
0: I feel like this is kind of a uh, tale as old of time to just steal some Disney since we already talked about Aladdin t- briefly, um, which I know that's not a line from Aladdin, but Disney. Anyway, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the vanity of Hollywood is something that they've brought up in you a know, multitude of movies over time, but this is the first time that they really got power who are out of their elements doing something funny. Um, I loved Bruce Willis in this. This was mm-hmm. this was hilarious to see him in this role, and uh, it, it is it's it's something super different. It's something I don't even I don't even want to call it nichey. Uh, the fact that it's a cult classic is a shame that there's only a cult following for it.
1: Well, I have to say that I trusted Bruce Willis with the comedy because I had seen the whole Nine Yards, and he's been on Saturday Night Live, and I knew he had that comedic timing. But when he's doing it, he's normally like. I'm still the tough guy and I'm being put into this funny situation and maybe I'm the straight guy off of it. Although I do remember he went on Saturday Night Live and uh, had a boy dance party with all the guys on Saturday Night Live. Like they acted like they were watching football. But as soon as the ladies left, they uh, all started dancing to pop music and stuff like that. And they're like, uh, guys just want to dance with each other. We can't ever do it. So we have to have a boy dance party in secret. So, um, so I knew Bruce Willis could be silly.
0: I was really interested in where this fell in his career when I was watching this. And this came between two of my favorite movies of his that a lot of people haven't heard of and or watched. Uh, He kind of dipped his toe into doing that action comedy a year prior with Last Boy Scout, which I really enjoyed. Hmm, And uh, immediately after this, he did Striking Distance, which actually happens in Pittsburgh. It does.
1: Pittsburgh movie. uh, Which
0: is more your flat out action. Yeah. So, uh, and then the year following that is Pulp Fiction. So that kind of gives you an idea of this where this happened in Bruce Willis's career. But uh, Die Hard two it out. Look who's talking. Before right? Uh, I didn't write that one down. Sorry. <laughs> Google will fix this. Uh, but anyway, I just I wanted to see where he was kind of at in his career when this movie came out, just because I didn't have that deep background in knowing where this movie fell, and to see it came between those two other movies, I was like. That's awesome. Yeah, this is, I think he was stretching his legs a little bit. Die Hard 2 was kind of a miss uh, box office wise. And I think it's pretty widely regarded as the worst of them. No. So he was trying something else. So, uh, you know, I can get behind it. He
1: also did Look Who's Talking in 1989 as well, which is also a comedy. He's the voice of the baby, though. Sure. He's the one who is talking and you should look at it. That's the movie I'm. So, um, so uh, anyway, uh, Meryl Streep, though I have not seen be funny. I saw an attempt of at that in Mama Mia, and I don't think that movie went particularly well. DJ shaking his head and confirming that. And uh, you know, I just know her from movies like The Deer Hunter or from you know heavy movies. And so, heavy, yeah. so uh, I honestly saw her and I was like, this probably won't be good for comedy this doesn't seem like someone who has comic sensibilities but you know what she does play that straight character she plays that she's 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 intense she's dislikable and she just dives right into that like fully commits to it she's she, uh, and uh, it works in a way and that,
2: that opening scene like where she's like on broadway doing this song and dance number i'm flabbergasted every time i see that because like that's that's a good amount of choreography and singing and obviously it's been cut together and hollywood magic has happened but
1: I'd say it went better here than it did in Mamma Mia, for that matter. (laughs) Also, Pierce Brosnan doesn't have to sing. That was not Pierce's best moment. No. Poor guy.
0: (laughs) I wasn't a fan of Mamma Mia. That that
1: Mamma Mia. No. Uh, Brian, why don't you give us a cast rundown? All right.
0: So, we're starting at the very top, as she usually is. Meryl Streep is Madeline Ashton. Bruce Willis is Ernest Minville. Goldie Hawn is Helen Sharp. Isabella Rossellini as Luis Von Ruman. Ian Ogilvy as Chagall. Adam Stroke as Dakota. Nancy Fish as Rose. And uh, I'll probably just trail off there because then people stop having names.
1: I'm going to mention that Ian Ogilvy is uh, the guy with the beauty spa who has that uh, eccentric wink in his face. Yeah. And so just just to clarify that, if anybody doesn't remember. And uh, uncredited, I definitely have to call it out, Sidney Pollack. Who's a famous Oscar-winning director. He did Tootsie and Out of Africa, amongst many other movies. He is a fantastic emergency room doctor, and this as well, worth mentioning, I think. So. Oh, I remember that. yep. So not credited though, for some reason. I'd I never understand why people are uncredited in anything.
0: It's so we have these conversations where they're like, "Sydney Pollack, really?" Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, I, just the easiest reference I can give you right this second is in Deadbolt, Deadpool two, as Brad Pitt is the Invisible Man. Yeah,
1: yeah. I didn't, I didn't catch that until afterwards. People had to point that out to me as well. But
0: um, if you, if, yeah, if you blink, you miss it. But.
1: <laughs> so it's actually interesting that DJ mentioned this, though, uh, that the singing and dancing went to Meryl Streep in the beginning because when she read the roles, that she thought she would be going out for. The role of helen helen yeah and uh, she thought that the singing and dancing would go more to goldie Hahn because this suits her and her skill set more but turns out not this is what they, they wanted her for this role and in fairness i like that better because i like goldie Hahn's better at playing the unhinged yeah
2: she one. did a great job
1: <laughs> so yes what do you think about these uh actors again Goli Han being the only one that you normally think of coming in here. What do you think their chemistry is together, DJ?
2: I think it's wonderful. Like, And that's, it's going to be harder later on when we try to recast this because I don't think I can. Like, I'm, I'm really happy with the chemistries that worked out. I think they're, they're brilliant together. I mean, the way it is shot, it really does center around the three of them, Helen, Ernest, and um, Madeline. So I think it's, I, I think it's wonderful.
1: You mentioned earlier that they're strong characters. I think it's interesting that Bruce Willis is one of the most weak-willed people that you will ever meet, and that he uh, is so easily manipulated, like a like a like a metronome, just back and forth, back and forth. And whoever he's with at the moment can mold in him and shape him. And I think that's why these women like him because they can just push him around. That he has money.
2: He's an empty vessel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: And I and his panicky, high-paced, frenetic nature. Uh, to me, that was a really fun dynamic. Uh, again, Meryl Streep perhaps being the more straight, you know, serious one who sets up the joke. And it's how Bruce Willis reacts to them is what's so funny. And then obviously you got Goldie Hahn who's like, I'm crazy. Yeah. So.
2: And the brilliance there is that because they, they made him so weak, uh, not an alpha male, like in the scene where he actually strangles Madeline, which is some heavy, heavy stuff that's spousal abuse, like this mm-hmm. is bad stuff you would feel bad for the woman, but you end up feeling bad for him. She's
1: pretty terrible for she like is. 50 minutes before that point. So um, I, I normally am with you on that one, but uh, this is the one time where it's just like, maybe you give her that little extra boop at the top of the steps. So uh, Brian, what about you? Uh, what characters did you actually like in this? Uh, I guess everybody, they're all very flawed characters.
0: Uh, well, I found a, a couple little nitpicky things later on after watching this that made me like parts of this movie even better. Um, I, I've really liked Isabella Rosalie for a lot of different reasons, but one of her lesser known aspects was of Jennifer Garner's aunt in the TV show Alias. Oh. So she was a recurring character in that, and that's kind of where she really endeared herself to me more so just because that was a show really close to me. Um, but one of the other things, and also dealing with, uh, uh, having to do with Rosalini is, uh, Catherine Bell was her body double for the naked scenes. And I don't know if you guys ever watched Jag, but had I known that I would have gone back and rewatched this earlier.
1: Yes. She's also in Bruce almighty. For those of you who are wondering who Catherine Bell is, she's a lovely lady. She
2: is. She is very attractive. It's true. And I had no idea that she had a body double.
1: I didn't know that either, but in fairness, uh, you know, they were going for that youthful look, and so uh, Rosalini is 38 in this movie, uh, which they do draw attention to that at one point. They do. And uh, I guess Catherine Bell is in her 20s, so they were really driving home the point that this youthful, eternal potion works. Plus, bigger name actress doesn't always want to... I guess she hasn't had any trouble taking her clothes off on film. Never mind. She does. She wouldn't shy away from that. Good point. <laughs> Good point. I don't know. S- scratch that last thought. Sometimes a bigger name actress doesn't say, "I'm not getting naked. I'm not cheap." <laughs> Which, by the way, wh-
2: if you want to see more, pay more.
1: Yes. Why? Why is uh? Why? why do you think Helen? Sorry. Uh, why do you think Madeline is so driven by being called cheap? It's like Biff being called chicken.
2: It, that is her Achilles tendon like and that's exactly what I thought that was the equation I made to it when she's walking away and if she just kept walking she could have been fine she wouldn't have gotten pushed down the stairs but she goes back in because she was called cheap she took the bait so it's I mean why why do we do anything like why you know why do I care about I don't know if I'm called like some stupid name or it's like why why do you let it get to you I don't know we all have our buttons
1: I don't know what my button is Brian do I have a button
0: not that I know of
2: <laughs> postmodern facades
1: oh thats yeah that's sorry it. yeah Kobe Kobe Bryant postmodern facades that'll do it for me
2: yeah
1: <laughs> um it's interesting that you mentioned about having a difficult time picking who to recast did you know who that Bruce Willis was originally cast uh, or the desired to cast was Kevin Klein who's in a movie uh, fish called Wanda which is the first one that comes to my mind I think he would have been good at this but I like Bruce Willis so much I wouldn't want to take him out. Yeah, I agree. But that's a good pick, though. I liked
0: Kevin Klein until I saw Wild Wild West.
1: That's just going to—we're going to expunge that from everybody's record. Will Smith, just—everybody gets a pass on that one. It It took watching Hitchcock for me to
0: forgive Will Smith for that movie.
2: Oh, I I liked it, but I, I probably saw that one a little bit too much, too.
1: Fun fact, that is the movie that Will Smith took instead of taking the role of Neo. And The Matrix. Really? Yep. Okay. He was their first choice for that one. And uh, he didn't get the pitch. And uh, he was overwhelmed by a complicated story. And he's just like, look, I'm going to go do Wild Wild West. Uh, uh, just just in the in the spectrum of good choice, bad choice, he <laughs> he's like, man, why didn't I take the red pill? Wicked Wild Wild. I actually don't mind the song. So that was probably the best thing that came out of it. Meryl Streep, though, did not enjoy uh, her part in this movie. Well, she did not enjoy the acting process of this because it's an effects-driven movie, and she's obviously more of a dramatic actress. And uh, so she did not like uh, having to work with blue screen conditions or acting like somebody who's there to not be able to play off of them. So she said whatever uh, contradiction that you can apply to that kind of comedy was just shredded for her. If you stand there like a piece of machinery, they would get machinery to do it. I loved how it turned out in the end, and I still like it, but it's not fun to be a, act like a lampstand, to pretend this is Goldie right there. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Bob. She went off uh, the mark by five centimeters, and now her head won't match her neck. And to do all that was like being at the dentist for her, which, as the son of a dentist, that's not nice, but... <laughs> I never mind going to the dentist.
2: But talking about the effects, like I feel that's one of the beauties of this film is that they did hold up very well through time.
1: That is a good point. It's a pretty decent movie appearance-wise. Even now, uh, I was surprised that the effects were from 1992, but I felt like everything else around me felt like it was 1988 or 1989, the the, the environments, the wardrobe, and I, I, I think uh, I might have misunderstood. In my head, put this back in the 80s while watching it. Cause I just saw some situations where it's just like, man, is this 92? Like, it's, <laughs> it's awfully late for either that piece of clothing or that article of, or that hairdo or whatever. So anyway, Brian, let's talk about the the look and the feel of the movie. I mean, I, it, I
0: thought it had a very Edward Scissorhands kind of feel to it. I feel like everything that uh, they did, all the shots they chose to use were very stylized, very dark. Um, while using sharp contrast, like the reds are all very red. Everything Goldie Hawn was in stark contrast to Meryl Streep's white. Yeah, I don't know. It just kind of gave me that Edward Scissorhands vibe.
1: So white, uh, I, that that that's a good point. Red being like anger, which she's anger, clearly rage, yeah, she's in passion. rage. Why white, do you think, though, for this character who maybe black would suit her more? She seems very. Um, unpleasant, just, like a... just way of putting it I mean, she's she's vain, she, she's shallow I, I wonder why white
0: To quote the great warrior poet Paula Abdul she's a cold-hearted snake, uh, Okay. she don't play by rules. Okay,
1: icy maybe like I see, yeah. Okay, that's fine I'll, I'll take that, I, I had to reconcile that when you said that. So DJ, you mentioned being a Robert Zemeckis fan and he is uh, both the producer and the director of Death Becomes Her where do you see Robert Zemeckis in this movie, and talk about maybe some of the other things that he had done, and why you were enthusiastic for him as a director?
2: Yeah, so like my my first experience with him was the Back to the Future trilogy, which is like one of my all time favorite movie trilogies ever. Like I think it's great. Aside from that, I also grew up watching Who Framed Roger Rabbit a lot, mm-hmm. um, and this one played in the background as well. Again, at the time, I did not know it was a Robert Zemeckis. Like so going back and realizing and connecting these dots between all of his films, um, I I appreciate it so much more uh, now versus then. I also love Tales from the Crypt a lot too, which he did around the same time period as this. And a lot of people have commented that it feels a lot like an extended Tales from the Crypt episode and the storytelling of it. Um, So I can't really define specifically what I like about his style because it's it's kind of, um, it's conflated with a lot of nostalgia for me. But I I love the storytelling. I love the special effects. I love the kind of the slapstick comedy that's involved here and the kind of dark nature of the story.
1: I think there's a bit of... You could say there's a bit of a twisted bend even in Back to the Future in terms of you have this mother falling in love or wooing her son. Her son. So, I mean, we've become... So we love these characters so much, but at the end of the day... Uh, there, that was a movie that had a hard time getting made because nobody wanted to pick it up because they would just be like, I mean, like Disney got pitched the movie and they were like, Psh, I'm not touching this. That That's incest. That's Too much. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I can't deal with that. And so that darkness that you're talking about does seem to be in there. And that bigger than life nature of it, this is bigger than Romancing the Stone, but he did Romancing the Stone as well in 84. Forrest well, I don't, Gump. Forrest Gump. That's another really Dude good. One. AIDS. It's true. That's true. That one's more grounded in reality, I suppose, uh-huh. but yeah. Um, Brian, Robert Zemeckis, give us some of your thoughts.
0: I did not know as Robert Zemeckis until I was watching the credits at the end of the movie, and that kind of made me raise an eyebrow based on the movies that I have been like really into of his. Uh, probably my favorite of his movies, and this is no disrespect to Back to the Future trilogy, but What Lies Beneath? Whoa. was one of my favorite thrillers. That's a good one. And I yeah, absolutely, absolutely love that movie. Uh, Harrison Ford also doing something he does not typically do in that movie. You know, I don't know. I, I completely dug it from the, from the standpoint that I'm like, okay, yeah, I see aspects of this movie, parts of his work. Uh, but I'd say it's probably upper third of his work. If I had to put it into a category, he's also done some ones where I'm like, dude, seriously.
1: Perhaps some of the ones that you're talking about, about seriously, is I think that later in his career, his vis- his passion for visual effects goes into animation, and that takes him to do movies like Polar Express, uh, which was technology wasn't quite there yet. Uh, it ha- it seems unnerving that people look too too real, but too, too plastic. Yeah, like there's something almost like you're watching Chucky the uh, Polar Express, even though it's a children's story. Hmm. It's, it's, yep. it's just off-putting. Uh, I did like the movie Beowulf, uh, but again, it was odd that they chose to do this computer animation, uh, again, of people. It, it just was a strange moment for that. And then A Christmas Carol, which is a Jim Carrey movie, but again, it's an animated uh, thing. Again, the people just don't look like... Car- I think you're better off to make cartoon characters look like cartoon characters.
0: Beowulf would be my very, very bottom one of his movies.
1: Really? Well, he's, he has pretty good movies, so yeah. <laughs> um, I'll be honest with you, Contact is a thought-provoking movie, and it's well done, but it's a little arduous to get through. It's long, it's dry, and Contact is probably my bottom point for my Zemeckis. I, I remember going to the theater and that one being like, this is going to be great, and then I got out of there and was like, "I, <laughs> man, I don't know, the payoff's not there at the end. And...
0: Allied wasn't particularly good. I did not see Allied. So, did you ever see Allied with uh, Bruce Willis and... Uh, or not Bruce Willis, I'm sorry. Uh, Brad Pitt and Marion Colliard?
2: Nope. No. I didn't either.
1: What is it about his career, though, that after, like, I'd say Castaway with Tom Hanks is his last really good movie, that I, I would say. I agree. What happens to Robert Zemeckis in the year 2000? He goes away for four years before attempting to do the Polar Express. And then, like uh, Brian and is alluding to, there's not a lot of integrity there. So, Robert Zemeckis, what happened to you? We want to know. Tell us.
0: I, I didn't see Flight, and I heard Welcome to Marwin was good, but I didn't see it either. So I can't really speak to his latter 2000s career. But, um, no, it's an, it's, an, it's an accurate point. There were just there, – there's some definitely duds in there. He definitely produced some – like he really went heavy into producing horror – uh, for a while so maybe that was why he stepped away from the camera uh he produced like the reaping house of wax gothica ghost ship um
1: ghost ship hey reference back best death scene for dj there
0: it is uh, thir- 13 ghosts a house on haunted hill like uh, he was all producer in all of those so it's just one of those things where i think he was kind of doing he was on a kick Uh, what lies beneath was one that he, he actually directed during that time. So, you know, he probably got onto a thing. And then when he came back to directing, he wanted to kind of take easy on himself a little bit, let the animators do the work and then two turds popped out.
2: Yeah. I also wonder if it has to do with the, the kind of the team he assembled early on and like over time as they became, uh, more, uh, uh, established in their own careers and in their own right, them leaving and doing other things. Like, hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. I believe the the special effects studio that worked on Death Becomes Her later went on to do Jurassic Park.
1: That's right, IGM, I believe it is. Um, right on. Sorry, ILM, uh, the Industrial Light and Magic team, which is a terrible name for a company. Yeah. Get a better name.
0: The, there's also some weird ones out there in the uh, production community. So.
1: It's true. Every time a movie is about to begin, they always show the studios or the effects teams that are involved with them, and I always think the movie's about to begin. And then I realize, oh, that's just a studio. And I'm like, okay, this is the movie. Oh, no. That's just another one of those things. If you really
0: want to see the the really weird name Corporate entities for like sound and lighting and visual effects and cinematography and stuff out there. Wait until like five minutes before a post credit scene of an Avengers movie and read some of the names of these companies because Jess and I always get a big kick as like, Oh, it's green thumb man, button hook, lighting execs. And you're just (laughs) like, "What? what you just words from a Scrabble dictionary. And Said that's it, pick six of them. That's our name.
1: Maybe they have an app for that, like you know what you're gonna name your company or like it's like name your band, like just like you put it in, like you get two random words together. So
2: name generator.
1: Yeah, orange octopus. It's a name Ooh. generator.
0: Yeah, there's your
1: company name or band name, whatever you want.
0: Nailed it. Bug hits windshield Inc. It happened to me last night. Uh, <laughs>
1: So this this, this movie had a series of m- different endings. I don't know if you guys were familiar with any of these or not. DJ, do you want to talk about any of those?
2: Well, I've never actually seen them. I've only ever read about them. So please help me out here as I go. But supposedly, the, uh, after the movie was originally shot and put together, they had to um, recut it because it did not receive very well reviews. Um, and a lot was actually taken out. Some of these scenes were actually still included in the movie's trailer, um, but in particular, Tracy Ullman was originally in this film. Um, her role was cut completely. She was a bartender who uh, who was supposed to kind of assist uh, Bruce Willis's character Ernest in his kind of overcoming of things. Um, and how did it how did it end originally? Like
1: so, the way that that one works is it, uh, Ullman's character Tony helps ernest reuse uh sorry ruse of faking his own death in order to get away from madeline helen and leslie les He's- okay leslie and the plan works and the two end up running away to europe starting a new life together many years later madeline and helen both parodies their former selves with a cracked peeling paint they've got putty covering their gray and rotting flesh and they're on vacation in Switzerland and they are completely bored and miserable, and they notice an elderly couple being affectionate, and they become envious of them. As the couple gets into the car and drives away, Madeline and Helen realize that it's Ernest and Tony. They chase after them, only to be hit by an uncommon car and break into pieces, very similar to the theatrical ending that you have in the other movie. So that does not sound as good, by the way. As I mentioned earlier, I really like the eulogy scene where they don't just lay it on thick. Like, they, they really lay it on thick. Like, life doesn't really begin until you're 50. He had (laughs) two sons and four daughters and started three charities and, you know, (laughs) touched the lives of so many.
2: (laughs) Yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. uh, this, This movie takes place in i guess it takes place in new york i didn't feel like it was new york to me tim burton new york yeah i guess it's filmed in la and that's why it felt like it was california
2: well so we go from new york to beverly hills so we are jumping
1: did they mention that
2: yeah so like in the the 1978 sequence that's broadway new york it's the kind of reigning tim Uh burton-esque kind of look to it um and then we jumped to beverly hills and that seems to be where the majority the rest of it takes place
1: i did not realize that i missed that because that that was that was eating at me the whole time because the first part they said broadway and did i did they say beverly hills seven years later because it just says seven years later i thought and i just assume we're still in new york
2: it did just say seven years later um trying to figure out how i inferred that
1: you've just accepted it with multiple viewings i think because 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 i never knew that we were in california i kept sitting there i was like are we in California now? This feels like
2: California. Oh, I know, I know. Because in the scene where, like, after Madeline has shot um, Helen, um, Ernest is freaking out because the neighbors are going to hear, the neighbors are going to hear. And she's like, in the entire 12 years we've been in Hollywood or Beverly Hills, oh. have you ever seen The Neighbors?
1: Good point. Good point. Yeah, he, I'm with you. He called me on that. Well, that's one, of my, uh, that's one of my little things that I can put to rest. I still think it should say seven years later in L.A.,
2: I, yeah give us a location yeah and so
1: it starts in 1978 and that's where we have really homely looking uh helen introducing her to madeline and uh or sorry entr- er, introducing ernest to madeline and so uh, then they skip seven years later to fat helen which is 1985 which some people like to point out that's the same year as back to the future for robert Zemeckis' purposes so uh also the year I was born, so.
2: We actually do get an October 20th, 1985 date, and that date is used on the time machine in Back to the Future.
1: Ah, reference. Really specific then. And then another seven years later is where we pick up most of this movie, which is in what was present day at the time in 1992. And uh, even though it looks like 1988 to me. um, And then I like the deaths, or sorry, the uh, eulogy scene in 37 years later in 2029. So that's your timeline in the movie so uh, what do you think about the environments uh, you've you've actually dispelled one of my biggest hang-ups on this movie of why we were in uh, New York versus Los Angeles but uh, why do you think they did that why do you think they started New York and went Los Angeles DJ
2: well I mean this is kind of like the the history of Hollywood like the film industry began in New York and then later migrated to Hollywood so you have that that kind of interesting little happy accident going on hmm. um, it is again a film about vain people obsessed with youth and i mean i don't mean to stereotype hollywood people if if you're out there la people but you do tend to be a very let's say pretty culture out there superficial superficial
1: yeah that's fair
0: as and oswalt would have said it um they moved from a place in new york which is a city without a future to a city like la which has no past
1: okay perfect i like that some interesting things that just jumped off the page and perhaps made me just tip my head. Uh, I, we have the Greystone Mansion, which this thing is in so many movies. Uh, it's, a, it's an earnest funeral home, and it's built in 1928 by George Kaufman. It's in There Will Be Blood, The Prestige, it's Spider-Man, uh, like where the Osborns live, The Bodyguard, Eraserhead. I mean, if you ever want to see like a, one structure that hosted so many movies, it's the Greystone Mansion. Uh, For sure. And uh, the other one was uh, Ebel of uh, Los Angeles, the uh, notable women's club in L.A., which was built in 1927. And uh, also the paint can where she falls down the steps is at St. Mary's University. So some moments of L.A. And I guess it had to be L.A. to be around the celebrities. Is another good point. So like because you had Greta Garbo being mentioned. You had uh, who are some of these celebrities that they mentioned? Elvis.
2: Elvis
0: was one of
1: the ones who had taken the potion was hiding.
0: James Dean was in there. Yeah,
1: that was probably my favorite one. Because he was getting his car at the time. Uh,
2: Jim Morrison. Jim in the... Morrison. Yeah. Uh, Andy Warhol, but he was New York.
1: Yes. Well, he would probably be everywhere, right? I mean, yeah. yeah he, wherever the party goes, <laughs> I'm sure Andy will go as well. And Marilyn Monroe was with him. I like that. So the rule is, you get to live a long time, but uh, you have to uh, go into go go into hiding, so to speak, or keep it on the down low, fake your death. DJ, I gotta ask at this point, would you take the potion? Would you stay young?
2: I'm going to say yes just for fun. Like, I, I want to see. I have to take really good care of myself and not get killed, basically.
1: It seemed like everybody else was doing a better job of that.
2: Yeah, like, how, how are they able to live these, like, discreet lives, like, and I, maintain?
1: Yeah. I don't know. Spray paint. <laughs> uh, Brian, what about you, man? Are you, uh, you're, you're uh, at Isabella Rosalini's mansion... And uh, she's offering you, you uh, know, she, she uh, makes your hand look like it's 10 years younger. Are you drinking the drink? Uh,
0: no, I do far too many stupid things uh, for that to be a legitimate option for me. Um, I would, I'd be losing limbs left and right. Oh <laughs> uh, God, I've, I've had a conglomerate of interesting injuries in my life. I've broken skull, collarbone, back, nose a couple times, leg. Yeah, I just, oh, wow. it's, it's not, I am not of a ability to keep myself whole, so uh, yeah, I'll pass.
1: Yeah, and the worst one was the sledding accident.
0: Yeah, actually, three of those, three, yeah, the three worst of those injuries came in one one fell swoop.
1: Sledding, you gotta watch out. That's why he moved uh, out to Spokane, where the sledding gets even more serious. <laughs> think think <laughs> of all the damage that you can ensue. That's, that's yeah, why I know, you right? shouldn't drink that. Good 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 point to not drink that, Brian. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I've always kind of thought being a vampire, it was a pretty good deal. Like, I would just drink people's blood who suck. Like, I mean, that's no pun intended, but I mean, I'd be like, uh, I don't know, I might get like a job as like a, you know, part-time like night warden or whatever, like at a jail or whatever. And be like, it's like, oh, that guy killed children. Like, he had like 12 body stuff under his porch. i would be like, all right, eternal life, pretty good gig. I'll just drink this guy's blood and go back home and, you know. Immortal Life seems pretty good. Think of the power of compounding interest over <laughs> yeah. time. I mean, do you have any idea how good your 401k looks after like 300 years? I mean, you've got multiple houses. None of them can have windows. But I mean, it's a small price to pay. I just, I was thinking about it. So my initial thought would have been like, yeah, yeah, I'll drink this drink. And I'm not thinking about it in terms of just looking good. I'm just thinking about it in terms of um, like... Man, I can get a lot done in forever.
2: It would be an interesting go at it, right?
1: Yeah.
2: To your point about the the blood bank and what how you would you know do that, you know, what?
0: For... I totally get you on the vampire piece, but I I I don't would do it this direction like i get you on the vampire direction because i don't feel like you fall apart i feel like this is a very fall aparty thing
1: you're right in fact if you get a good drink of blood you completely regenerate so but you can't go out at night and so sorry d- i mean but you only have to you have to go out at night
2: yeah and that's one question i have is like so like obviously if you have some sort of mortal injury upon taking this elixir you're dead but still animated but what about injuries like do you do they heal faster like what's going to go on like if you get a cut a broken bone like
1: it seems like you're stuck with it. She said you have to take care of your body. See, I don't
2: think anything heals. Aim over.
1: But what's weird is it makes his hand better. Like she it does. Cut, she cuts his hand, and then it heals. It heals and makes him look better. Well, there's the initial rejuvenation. Yeah. Can you get a touch-up drink? I'm wondering, like a like a shot. Like a booster shot. Yeah. I'm guessing it's a one-off. It does seem to be that kind of deal. I also thought it was interesting. Isabella Rosalini said her character was in her 70s. Is that correct?
2: 71, I believe.
1: Right would you have liked it better had she been like 800 years old and has been doing this for
2: centuries i think they should have gone that route like just do something that was like clearly just like what no you're not 300 or 800 or however many you know centuries old
1: right i think it would be fun for her to know like historical figures of like you know i gave. oh yeah i gave the elixir to winston churchill i mean yeah He's retired now. He, he's in Hawaii or whatever.
2: Cayman Island, somewhere.
1: Yeah. Or, yeah, I gave the elixir to Biggie. Oh, he was still alive at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. <Spoilers. laughs> Damn it, oh. Russell. <laughs> Oops. Well, we already put out the warning. There will be spoilers ahead. So, <laughs> sorry to all of you in 1992 who didn't know that Biggie's uh, demise was coming. And Tupac's too. No! <laughs> So another person you mentioned, part of the team, is uh, Dean Cundley is uh, the cinematographer. He's somebody who works with ILM on Jurassic Park as well, I believe, as well as he was in the Back to the Future movies as well. So the cinematographer. One thing I noticed when we're talking about the direction a little bit um, is there's a number of mirror shots in this movie. There's a number of scenes where you don't even know they're in a mirror until they zoom out. Like when she first wakes up in the morning, Madeline, when she first gets up in the morning her poor sister has to come in and say, boy, you look even younger today, Madeline. And they zoom out and it's a mirror shot. Goldie Hahn, I actually was sitting there thinking, is like, did they move her mole to the other side of the face? Is that is that mole fake? I was starting to think. But it zooms out and it's a mirror. And not only is it a mirror, it's a mirror with all of this like kill Madeline yeah. Like glued to the wall everywhere. <laughs> So obviously I think this is a a reinforcement of the fact that these people are vain. So, uh, but that was a, I think that was a really nice job. These won't be my best shots of the movie per se, but that was a really good job from the director to do that, to immerse you into these people were looking at a mirror all the time.
2: And to that point, like the, the feel of the cinematography speaking is like, it has some kind of Tim Burton feels to it. Um, I also felt a lot of like 1930s kind of film noir like again it is kind of like close-up shots on the actors and actresses like really kind of intimate looks Um, only occasionally do you kind of get some kind of vast overviews Um, the architecture me did not stand out as much because there's not a lot of images of a a total building it's more just like a stairway or a room or a hall of some sort Uh,
1: Isabella Rosalie's mansion looks like it's that's pretty epic
2: yeah that is pretty epic
1: yeah this movie has a lot of really great costume work and the first one that comes up to me is the fat suit costume brian what do you think about the fat goldie Hawn here
0: oh i mean that's that, that was hilarious that whole part with her being a cat lady eating was that like cr- uh, sour cream
1: it was uh, cake a
0: cake frosting tub? like i cake frosting i was just like
1: oh man that is just wow that's dark. Uh, that, that, that was definitely... Oh, and I know what I was going to say now. It was... Um, you said Tim Burton. This movie reminds me of Beetlejuice.
2: Ah. It's the,
1: sure. it's the reanimated yeah. death nature of it. Obviously, you don't have the great forced perspective of these little models there's and the sandworms zipping through things and the colors on Tim Burton. So it's not that fantasy. Uh, but I thought when I saw this, there's really nothing like this. And then I thought to myself, maybe a little bit of Beetlejuice in here. And Brian said Edward Scissorhands earlier, and you just said Tim Burton, so I'm coming back full circle, and I'm gonna go with that.
2: There's well. a lot of rain in the movie too, a lot of rain and thunderstorms.
1: Yes, yeah. Well, it makes sense. I mean, it's, it, it's I,
0: just a very dark movie.
1: Yes, it's, you gotta have a little bit of a sense of ominous nature because there's some supernatural play at hand. So a lot of great costume work here. Uh, they really olded up Bruce Willis. I had just happened to see the movie, the Jackal on TV and, uh, which Bruce Willis is actually older in that, but he looked like to me young cause he's got all of his hair and I'm like, wow, look how young Bruce Willis looks in 1997. And then I saw this and I was like, Bruce Willis doesn't look good in this. And I'm sitting there going, what year is this again? And like, I didn't realize quite right away because the makeup actually is pretty good. Um, that they really olded him up. And and furthermore, they drove the point home. They make them very pale. Yeah. They give them the spots. And, um, (laughs) I think uh, they made Meryl Streep look old as well. Did they not? They did. Yeah. Yeah. DJ, what are your, what are your thoughts on how they used makeup and costume and wardrobe to make all the, the characters show that time passage and that age?
2: They did a wonderful job. Like it, it really sold the part, like to make these people feel older. Um, a fun fact is that they actually constructed this kind of pneumatic bra for Meryl Streep during her kind of rejuvenation scene that would push her breasts up. So it's a machine that does that. However, it never worked quite well. So what they ended up having to do is she had an assistant standing behind her who would push her breasts up from underneath on cue to make them look firmer and.
1: So the assistant said, "You know what, Meryl? The, the machine's not working. Just, I'm, don't to don't worry you. about it. I've got, I've got it." <laughs> How's that?
2: The hands are warm.
1: <laughs> Robert, you know what? I don't feel like I lifted him up the right way. Let's do it again. <laughs> you know what? I feel like I was pulling up. Sorry, pushing up a little more on the left than the right. I think. Let's we, do it again. Let's, let's just, I want this to be right. This is a very important scene. It's going to be in the previews, I'm pretty sure. I mean, if, if this looks wrong, people aren't going to come to the movie, Robert. It's like, I, I think we got it. It's like, you don't have it. <laughs> Um, that's, that's a very funny story. I didn't know about that one. So at, uh, Helen Sharp's book signing event, upon closer inspection, there's a brooch pinned on one of the straps of Helen's dress. The brooch is the same brooch that, uh, Leslie gives her clients. So it's like that little pin that she gives them as a subtle cue that Helen has already taken the potion between, uh, her and the time of the mental institution and so she, when she sees Madeline and Erlenes again for the first time at the book signing event, she's younger. Um, we don't know that. We just think she's gotten her life together as a way to stick it to Meryl Streep's character or uh, Madeline's character. But DJ, you've seen this far more than I have. Had you ever noticed the little broche pen um, I on I never actually Hong? noticed the pen. Yeah. So that's one of those little things that I had to read about it and then go back and look for it. It is there, but... Uh...
2: I did, however, notice in the scene where she's um, trying to seduce Ernest and she keeps saying sex, sexy, sexual. She has lipstick on her front teeth the entire time and it is not sexy, but.
0: Bruce Willis has zero cares.
1: He he does, it's true. He he looks like, He's
2: yeah, he's beguiled.
1: (laughs) He actually reminds me of like Austin Powers. Like he's like, Twins Basil. Another funny thing is how much they've unsexied Goldie Hawn when we first meet her. And so my first thought too when we came into the movie, I was just like, "Man, Goldie Hawn looks pretty rough in this movie." A little and dowdy. Yeah. And do either of you guys have a friend that you uh, have to bring? Like, if you were dating somebody back in the day, like, did you have a Madeline uh, Swan test? I did not know. No. Okay.
0: Nope. You have to have friends that are capable of that sort of thing first. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if I would have hung around with anybody that I'd be like, oh, I'm going to use this as an, you know, this is going to be a test because that person would steal a person in a heartbeat. And then I'm like, why would I be friends with that person?
1: Yeah, that's true. They, they never actually go back and tell the backstory in these two. I am a little bit curious to know how these two became friends. Cause I thought they were sisters for quite some time in this movie. And then they mentioned, and there's context that alludes to that they, that they are... I uh, want to say it has
2: something to do with either junior high or college because at one point Madeline mentions that she was always jealous of Helen's GPA. Yeah. So there's some sort of school rivalry or something.
1: Interesting. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wouldn't this be even more fun if they were sisters, so therefore there was a reason for them to be stuck together like this to some degree, and it would have been a lifelong feud? Yeah. That was one thing that I was kind of thinking that like... I can see it. Yeah. It takes 50 minutes. For her to die. DJ, do you feel like the pace of the movie is right? Like, do you like the, the build-up? It, it, it's quite a long build-up, really, before the main plot device kicks in that she's dead and that they know it. Um, I feel like the energy really picks up on the movie once she does die. and She's being reanimated in the background. He's trying to cover up a murder scene. They go to the hospital. These are some of the best scenes in the movie for me. How do you feel about that long lead-in?
2: For me, I... It doesn't bother me because I think the dialogue there are so many good one liners and so many kind of like funny scenes for me at least, that it, it um I feel like it, it, it almost starts off like rising action immediately, very quickly, and it doesn't really cease until the eulogy for me
1: mm-hmm.
2: at the end.
1: Okay. Yeah. What about you, Brian?
0: It might have been a little slow at the beginning. Um again, I was trying to reconcile the 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 vague Uh, memories I had of this movie with what was actually happening so I I, I probably could have spent more time just purely enjoying it
1: upon a second watch I enjoyed it more though so I don't know DJ you might be able to confirm this I don't know how many times you have seen it but uh, it seems like it's the kind of movie that gets better with age like I mean with more viewings it
2: does like to the point when you can memorize a dialogue and start spitting it back like that's that's the kind of brilliance of it
1: So we were talking a little bit about the getting younger scene, uh, or, I mean, the hydraulic bra scene that didn't work out so well. That's actually, I want to talk a little bit more about that on the special effects, because, again, when I first started watching this movie, I was thinking, it's like Meryl Streep, she looks the same now as she did then, and I don't mean that in a good way to now. I mean that in like a man, she didn't, was she ever young? And so I also didn't realize that she was young, too. But, I mean, again, they had that uh, scene. I, I don't know how they made her face. Go from being kind of worn to looking a lot more like herself and being vibrant. I didn't detect any big cuts or cutaways or how they would have done that back then. Now with now with computers and stuff like that, I tried to look that up, but no indication of how they did that. And I, I again in 1992, I'm, I was I, I gave them a lot of credit on that. That that looks really good. I just was I just wanted to call that out as a good moment for the effects. So. Uh, Brian did you have any special effects moments that you particularly were impressed with
0: I mean I always enjoyed the part where she gets shot um, and just in terms of her sitting down on a couch and that what was left of the shovel handle like literally goes through her torso as she's sitting there so yeah stuff like that like that was that was an amusing
2: part and that, that was actually allegedly a mistake. Like, Goldie Hawn missed her mark when she sat down on that couch and mistakenly sat where the shovel end was supposed to be. And if you actually watch that scene a little more closely, you'll see that they, they move it a little bit. Like, as she's sitting down, it, it shifts downward so it kind of skewers through the hole in her stomach or her abdomen.
1: Huh. I wonder how they did that then, because I made the assumption that they she would have worn, like, a blue dot on her dress to do blue screen on. And they would have shot film with like the scene with nothing with nobody in it and then overlaid the exposures. But I'm wondering how you do that if she's got like a blue dot on her dress, how you do that in post, how you can fix that later. That's interesting.
0: Hollywood, man.
1: Yeah, actually, when, when you can't explain it, I always am extra impressed. Usually when you do explain it, I lose my interest for it in modern day movies. But it's actually the opposite. Like when you go back and do like in the Wizard of Oz episode, like when they were talking about how they did like the twister and stuff like that, I thought like the nitty gritty almost like play like, like this is how we did it. Like because we really had to do it. Somehow in the old, old movies, like how resourceful they had to be with how limited they were. Then I'm impressed once you've me how did you do it. But like I think by the 90s, like sorry, the 90s is the transitional decade. Like early on, it's like, wow, that's really neat how you thought to overcome that challenge or make it look more real. And by the end of the '90s, computers are coming in more. And It's just like, oh, you used ones and zeros, and
2: the magic box did it.
1: Yeah, and I, I I don't want to diminish anybody who does visual effects through computers, but um, somehow doing it the old way seems more like it's just like a, like oh, that's fun. I like how they did that. And this movie has a lot of those moments for me, so I have a good time with the effects. Even how their body breaks into pieces and their heads are upside down. Again, you know, they've just got like a, a bodysuit that's blue to mask out their body and stuff like that. But I mean, I don't know what they, they would just cheat their way through that digitally as well now, too. So
2: they also use some animatronics for this. And I don't know. I can't actually tell what is animatronic versus what is like CGI.
1: Hmm. Well, I think one thing that had to be CGI was the reanimation scene when she gets up because nobody can tangle themselves. Can... I, I don't think that was a dummy either. And also, she was walking through the room with her head backwards. That that had to have been CGI, looking back on that one, but it still looks pretty good. It does. I can think of many other worse CGI moments in the 90s after this. I'm thinking of, like, just right off the bat, like, Blade has some really bad CGI that just comes to my mind right away. So, I don't know about you, but Brian, what, Heck,
0: that? there was bad CGI in the third Matrix movie
1: yeah bad cgi moments i don't know if you have any of those dj
2: not that i can readily think of they they will come to me later probably
1: okay what do you think about this score dj it's good i
2: like it um i mean it it just i'm trying to think of what it reminds me of what i could equate it to like uh it's it's your typical kind of like violin kind of build up you know kind of thing going on brian any thoughts from you
0: Absolutely, I uh, I was humming the little three chord piece two hours after we watched the movie last night. So like even if it's just a little thing, I love it when movies do that. There is the little whistle song in uh, Kill Bill.
2: Oh, I yeah. still
0: walk around and have that. Sound <laughs> by so it doesn't have to exactly. So it doesn't have to be complex. It just has to be you know a a good clever easily stuck
2: in your head thing to be memorable and i feel like they repeated a lot in this film too was that just me or did it actually reoccur like quite Mm,
1: i take many watches to try and get them to soundtrack but they did
0: they had like a it it happened anytime something dramatic would happen you'd have this little like snippet of sound
1: Uh uh-huh now i really like this one again it's not something i can't I don't think that I could come out of it humming it quite as well as Brian did, and it takes more watches for a soundtrack to hit on me, but I will tell you, it it nailed every moment and made it better, it took the larger-than-life moments, like, I love, like, when Bruce Willis, it's a miracle, and, like, the music comes to this crescendo, and there's a, like, big thunderbolt behind him in the skylight, and, um... On multiple occasions throughout this movie, the score responds well and just makes them elevates the moment. And you, again, I like this kind of campy humor. I think is a good way of putting it, and I mean that in the best way possible. And so uh, I, I I thought this was really. A very good score and it's got a creepy vibe to it when it needs to and it also just kind of has fun it never goes so creepy that you feel like you're in a horror movie but it's like got the campy creepy side of things where it's just like i'm still having fun but it's dark
2: It's good i mean back to the future is another one where the score is really a very well done piece i love it um the intro from tales from the crypt mm-hmm. another good one creepy
1: oh yeah definitely the only soundtrack number that i i had a little bit of criticism on was in the beginning when meryl streep's doing her number you know that i guess it's uh it, i saw me or it's gotta be me or um
2: i see me i see me yeah
1: which is in a mirror it's very yeah that makes sense so i see me i would go more dripping and more i'd go full out springtime for hitler because people have to be getting up and leaving this movie that's a producer's reference that i'm making here of course uh, we're they put this musical on that was so bad that it was meant to be a failure but i want to see the the music number be really tacky bad and on like on the nose like so bad i thought the lyrics could have been funnier there yeah like, like uh it's, it's, people have to like to leave angry one thing before we get into a few other things is uh what did you what was the deal with the hospital, DJ? A Tim Burton moment that made me think about this was all the door frames were painted bubblegum pink, the wallpaper had like this jungle print on it. it. Was, yeah. Like, they had like this shower curtain that like was pulled up like they again had this jungle print. It was the only moment of true stylized moments like this, cause even the mansion just like was a creepy big mansion or like they lived in a big, huge, nice house with this plastic surgeon. Why was the hospital so weird, do you think? I actually, mm. it's really stylized.
2: It is very stylized and because like, why not? <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering if this is where they get the the '90s decor in because everything else was in an older building, like it was meant to look a little bit more grand or something. And the hospital just was kind of the throwaway zone where you could do the the tacky printed curtains. And
1: I don't know if you have any idea. Like I, I was hoping you could clear that up on me. I was like, you know what, DJ might know when we get together on this one. But th- when I, I was watching it on my second pass through. Uh-huh. It just, it hit me as like, what's with this jungle print stuff? So that's not in any hospital. I'm
0: wondering if Zemeckis was like at a clinic or a hospital at some point in like the previous year and was just looking around like, yes,
1: this. I don't know. Yeah,
2: some reconnaissance for future films.
1: And the beauty spot that Madeline goes to, is, as DJ mentioned earlier, out of my postmodern nightmares, everything is like powder blue and like saturated. Fake stone
2: portals that look like styrofoam. Oh,
1: gosh, yeah, yeah. So if you ever want to know what Russell doesn't like in architecture, that that would be one of the many examples of it. Um, So (laughs) um, so anyway, let's go into the look for this moments. Uh, There's a lot of fun facts in this, but uh, DJ, do you have any look for this moments?
2: I mentioned the Goldie Hawn lipstick scene um in the kind of dream sequence where her and Ernest are kind of concocting their scheme to uh kill madeline um and you get to the end of their kind of their proposal where they're gonna uh, make it look like she was drunk driving they throw the car over a cliff and it explodes in this ball of flames and you're sitting in the morgue with her corpse and they lift up the hand and you see the bottle and there's like she was drunk she had it coming there's then um a look at the, the death certificate where they stamp it and there's a brain right next to it that says abnormal, which I see as Frankenstein as well as Young Frankenstein references. Yes. Again, going back to film noir and relationships to old Hollywood movies, so I appreciate that.
1: I did catch that. That was that made me so happy. I, and I saw it the first time too. I was like ooh! Uh, that I, I made me so happy because again I, I think of Young Frankenstein as like, it's like did you get the brain I asked for? No, it's from an abbey abby normal <laughs> uh brian do you have any look for this moment?s i
0: think my thing is one of the more uh, cg visual effects is how they did the potion i i always thought that was cool that was one of the things that i did remember from watching it all those years ago is how that looked so cool um aspects of never-ending story and the way they show metaphysical things uh i don't know i just always enjoyed that
1: so my look for this moment is going to be when they go... We talked about a lot of the fun dead celebrities that they had that weren't really dead there, but uh, Isabella Rosalina's character refers to the, quote, I want to be alone. And I didn't necessarily understand that reference, but as I mentioned earlier, this is a this was from f- uh, film legend Greta Garbo. Uh, her actual words were, I want to be left alone. So, so when she goes, like, I want to be left alone, like Meryl Streep goes, no. No. Because really? Yeah, my first pass to the movie, I was like, I don't. That's not. It's like, what? That's not doing it for me. I need, <laughs> I need more. Are we going to continue with this? So, yeah.
2: Brian, really quickly back to your point about the elixir. I've never been able to confirm this, but people at home should try. But if you look into the bottle on the few close up scenes of the, uh, or the vial, I should say, of the elixir itself, you can see a nude woman dancing.
1: Hmm. Did not know that.
2: Oh, didn't know that either. So that might be why you liked it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Time for some superlatives, DJ. You ready to hand out some awards? Let's do it. MVP,
2: uh, Meryl and Goldie.
1: Okay, it's a tie. Tie. I, I'm gonna allow that this time. Brian MVP.
0: Uh, I'm gonna go with Bruce doing something a little different.
1: I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna go with Bruce Willis too, because, as I mentioned, uh, particularly on my second pass through this movie, I was sitting there thinking, I was like, man, the comedy of him reacting. To what these guys are doing because they're playing it pretty straight like they're like they're so mad at each other They're feuding with each other. They're not they're not even noticing that. Hey, I'm reanimated from the dead or I'm actually dead The zaniness comes from Bruce Willis of like, you know, like, oh Oh, it's a miracle. Like how is this happening? Or like I love the line of like wait a minute I'm starting to think that this isn't a miracle at all <laughs> Like um, His goofy nature he takes it over the top and like I said, I've seen Bruce Willis be funny but not like this. And I now like Bruce Willis even more because of this movie. So he's my MVP. Best Supporting Actor. Bruce Willis. Okay. Probably for some of the reasons we were just saying. or mm-hmm. any, Yep. And uh, Brian, Best Supporting Actor.
0: I'm going to go with Isabella Rossellini for me. Um, I thought she does creepy really well in this.
1: She does. And what is that accent she has, by the way? Like... Beautiful,
2: um, I know. I love
0: it. it,
1: it, it it's, but it is a little bit <laughs> and creepy it is. at the same time. She's off putting uh, you know,
0: some sort of Eastern European.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, her mother is uh, or her mother is famous actress Ingrid Bergman. And I can actually see that a little more in her face. Uh, I, my first introduction to her was Blue Velvet, which she doesn't look like herself in that movie. And I was just like, whew, this lady's got a lot going on. <laughs> um, and this time around, like, I could see that in her face. I was like, oh, she does kind of look like her mother. So um, which is a good thing. But yeah, I, I did like her. And I did have one other question. I don't know how that necklace stays in on, place. Yeah. The whole time Like that, that scene was going, It's just like, how's that necklace staying on that's covering her? So um, who's your hidden gem, DJ? I like
2: Elena Reed Hall, who is Helen's psychologist <laughs> early on. And in particular, I love the whole scene where <sighs> the psychologist asked her, Helen, is there anything you'd like to talk about today? And Helen pauses and is like, yes, I'd like to talk about Madeline Ashton. And the entire room just freaks out, like, just loses everything.
1: Oh, Madeline Ashton. I said Madeline Swan earlier. I don't know where I got that from, but yes. Ashton, good point.
2: I thought you meant like a swan, like she's like the pretty one, so you're just putting a swan test.
1: No, no, I think the whole wearing <laughs> white thing, I was trying to make that work harder, but you're right, it's Ashton, I, I messed that up, so, correction department now, but no, that's a really good pick, by the way, and I like how she yells at her too, cause Yes. I, I like the fact that the therapist yes. yells at, yells yes. at the person, which is, which is pretty funny, so... Uh, I might have a little more on that later, but Brian, who is your hidden gem?
0: Gosh, there's, there are a couple little things in this that I really liked, but I think I like the preacher the best at the very end of the movie Easy. who just keeps going on and on about like literally the antithesis of the two women, and they're just not buying it, but how enriched his life was without them. Uh, basically that every choice he made was pretty much the right one.
1: Yes, John John Engle was his name.
0: Post them.
1: Yes, John Engle was his name. So I like that. Okay, that's a great choice. Uh, Again, uncredited, I love Sidney Pollack's emergency room doctor. It it is, this is really up there for one of my favorite parts of the movie. His reaction of a doctor just not knowing what's going on uh, just cracks me up. So. Uh, I, I do want to give a small nod to Ingle uh, yeah, sorry Ian Oglovy uh, the guy who does the with the weird blink in his eye at the spa who says like you should go check this out so he's so eccentric physically that um, I don't know I, when I first started watching this for the first pastor I was like that guy's my hidden gem calling it right now <laughs> and then later on the doctor scene happened I was just like well crap mm. <laughs> it's going to be that now so gotta give a nod um, DJ if you had to recast somebody who would it be and Did who would I you put in their place two. That's, 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 the, that's the name of the game that's the point oh sometimes it's a, if you could replace somebody and you get to but this time I get the feeling that it's gonna be a forceful
2: it's gonna be forced, but I'm gonna choose kind of what I thought was a throwaway role to begin with but the the maid of the house I would recast her maybe as Robin Williams in some early drag
1: oh I like it. That yeah. I, you could get that been you, funny. Yeah, there's an opportunity to get some more comedy out of that character. Brian, recast.
0: I would like to it's not necessarily a recast, although it's a changing cast. I would love to see this movie with Rosalini as Streep and Streep as Rosalini.
1: Oh. I think Rosalini would do a very good job actually now that I think about it. I have a hard time seeing Streep going so dark, do you? Like that's, that's I I I guess oh, no. this
0: this stems this stems from wanting to see Isabella Rossellini in a bigger part in this movie. But I also think that Meryl Streep could probably do Tempterous Sorceress pretty well.
2: I think she could as well. Yeah, I agree with that.
1: Well, as I doubted her with being funny in the first place, I'm doubting her again. I don't know why I kept doubting Meryl Streep, but I just, for some reason, I don't know. Okay. I trust you guys, though, on this one.
2: Fun fact, they are writing a Broadway musical of this right now. Really? Yeah.
1: Well, we know the opening number. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> I hope people don't get up and walk out in the opening number. <laughs> Let me see, because they,
2: they announced who is going to star as Meryl Streep. Let me look at this.
1: Uh, while you do that, I'm going to go with uh, my recast, and don't be mad, uh, I see this as a great opportunity, as Elena Reed Hall, who is the therapist, and I do think she's good, but I'm actually going to put Whoopi Goldberg in as the therapist. I think that she would have done a good job of like uh, like yelling at the at the patient. Shoot, and, yeah. And it's a, such a small part because Whoopi is at peak Whoopi right now in 92. She does Sister Act, The Player, and Serafina that same year. And she's in Star Trek The Next Generation uh, that, that all in that year. So she's a busy lady. But I think she can afford 10 minutes to run from one movie set over <laughs> to yell at Goldie Hawn briefly in a fat suit. And I think that that would be fun. So...
2: And that musical is going to be starring Kristen Chenoweth.
1: Oh, yeah, yep yeah, has some name value. Um, Interesting. Best shot of the movie, DJ.
2: Um, the death scene where uh, uh, Madeline Ashton falls down the stairs. The the sounds during that, and just the cinematography, like makes my skin crawl. Like, mm-hmm.
1: That's a good one. You like that slow motion linger at the top of the stairs? Yeah. Oh. Uh, uh. That's one of those moments that just, like, says, like, we know we're campy and we're going to just go all the way. Yeah. It. And that, I really like that. The dagger throw was another one of those ones, like, where, like, Bruce Willis takes a dagger and, like, throws it at, like, the light switch to hit the lights and run out of the room. And it's, like, perfectly thrown. Like, just like, so, like, a cartoon or something like that. No one would ever be able to do that. I like that goofy nature of this movie. so Or, like, how a gutter, like, a rain gutter sits there, like, cantilevers out 20 feet away from the building and holds up even though... Uh, even an old gutter's not going to hold up to a full-grown man hanging on it. So I like those cartoon moments. So, uh, Brian, what is your best shot?
0: I'm going to go with driving up to Leslie's Manor for the first time, uh, keying back into those notes of Tim Burton. Uh, you really could have had like a Batmobile pull away as she pulled <laughs> up, and I'd just laugh a
2: little bit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would like that. Uh, my best shot is going to be when Bruce Willis, and part of it's the comedic timing of it. When Bruce Willis uh, stands up and goes, "It's a miracle," and the lightning crashes behind him in the skylight, and um, you know this is uh, in the this is in the uh, trailer of the movie as well. So, I just I I really like the framing of that shot and the again great comedic timing in there. I do want to give a nod to the very opening of the movie, where it starts off in the Broadway skyline, and then it pans down, and then you see the marquee, and then it pans down, and then you see people leaving the marquee. At the beginning of this movie, i this 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 movie starts off in a very pretty shot, and there's all those mirror shots too that I mentioned that weren't going to win, but they're they're noteworthy for a comedy movie. There's some good shots. Best scene, DJ.
2: It's going to be that uh, early opening scene where Helen is in uh, therapy.
1: Is it because of the fat Goldie Hawn or is it's against the therapist? Fat Goldie
2: Hawn, the therapist, the way they all lose it. It's clearly this thing is torturing her and she just kind of keeps reliving this same kind of broken moment again and again and can't get past it. Like, I think it's hilarious. Uh-huh.
1: Brian, what is your best scene?
0: Best scene is probably going to be the back and forth between Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep after they've really damaged each other the first time. And when they come to the conclusion that they're both better off with Bruce Willis's character because he can fix them.
1: Yes, and that was a really good twist of the movie that I didn't see coming. I'm going to go with the doctor's office. Uh, I love it when Sidney uh, Pollack's sitting there holding her wrist and this doesn't hurt. This doesn't hurt, and then like he sees the neck bulge, and like no doctor would go, oh gosh, oh no, and then like and like Bruce Willis is like, maybe she's in shock, maybe she's in shock. Yeah, let me check my stethoscope, and like the stethoscope's not working. Like he's like, and like throws it away in the garbage can, gets another stethoscope, and then goes up, and he's like. You have no heartbeat. I was like, "What does that mean, exactly?" <laughs> and like, and like, he's like, "Bruce Willis has a flask, on, he's like, let me have some of that.'" <laughs> and, like, and, and then he like walks out of the room, like taking his heart pills. And then later on, we see that he has a heart attack, <laughs> and he's like in disbelief of the whole situation. And then no sooner than that's over, you have Bruce Willis coming back in the room, being because like, Meryl Streep finds out she's dead, she passes out, and then they think she's a body they take her off the morgue. And Bruce Willis comes back and he's. He where is she? I'm terribly sorry, sir. I know how difficult this must be. I know it is, but like, I, I, how can anyone explain it? She goes, um, I know, sir. That's just, there's no way of explaining it. But where did you put my wife? Don't worry about that. You just need to give yourself time to mourn and to grieve. It's like, where did you put my wife? are <laughs> like frantically shaking her. She was like, she's dead, sir. She's in the morgue. The morgue? she'll be furious <laughs> and then whole... she's gonna be so mad <laughs> that whole scene oh man i watched it probably three times last night in preparation for this and i was like taking notes like it just it wasn't just one funny thing it was another funny thing this is like wall-to-wall jokes and it's really good and it actually reminded me a little bit of airplane like when he's talking about like where's where'd you take my wife and then like You know, you're having one conversation, I'm having another conversation, and they both make sense, so we're able to continue to have this conversation, but we are not on the same wavelength (laughs) at all. Uh, I I love that kind of humor. That's a very smart way of writing, so. um, Long way of saying it, hospital scene. Change one thing, DJ.
2: Hmm. Difficult. I can't. I really can't. I think it's perfect the way it is. I'm going to be no fun here. I'm sorry.
1: Uh, you can have my cop-out. This is my, this is my cop-out. When I truly love a movie and I give it five stars, my, my change one thing is add a post-credit sequence. Okay. So.
2: Add a post-credit sequence. And or show me all the deleted scenes.
1: Like having them glued back together or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I'd be okay with that. There you go. It's the biggest cop-out I've ever come up with, but uh, it looks like you need it right now. He, he, he looks stressed. <laughs> um, Brian, what is your change one thing?
0: I would have liked to have seen more, like, condescending, vapid friends around them. Like, people either egging them on in all the wrong ways. Mm. Like, I, it was a very shallow cast. So I could have seen maybe a little bit more uh, fluff to it.
1: I, 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 that would be good. And I'm going to go on a similar note of, this is just asking for more. But when Ernest decides to run from from them, from when he decides not to take the potion, I like the idea that the there are maybe those immortals or more immortals or Tom, Dick, and Harry, as like the her henchmen were called, which was that was funny in its own right. Chasing after him and a little more like I'd like a few zany rooms in this mansion, something off the wall, like something only a wild ho- like Hollywood celebrity type person would come into, like, I don't know, like step into a room that's full of jelly beans on the floor, or something <laughs> like that. And, and, and like, you know, there's somebody weird in the jelly beans, like it's like, hey, man, welcome <laughs> to the jelly bean room. It's the like... schnozberries <laughs> taste like schnozberries. I just think that there's an opportunity for something really off the wall to happen in Leslie's house. And um, I don't know. It It's just one one opportunity as this chase goes. Because he gets chased by these dogs. And I want something more to happen to him before he gets on the roof. So. Well, Fabio was there. Was he?
2: Yeah. He was one that. of her men.
1: I can't believe it. Yeah. It's not butter.
2: It's not <laughs>
1: It's margarine. <laughs> Best quote of the movie, DJ.
2: You're a tragic, boozy, flaccid clown. That's it. Flaccid. Flaccid. Flaccid.
1: Tongue was hanging out just now. <laughs> oh. Uh, let's go with uh, Brian. Oh, for Christ's sake, lie quicker. <laughs> this is one where. Uh, Helen is there and uh, Madeline has come down and they have now seen each other and, you know, Ernest is stuck there and, like, he's sitting there going, like, oh, no, like, like everything's coming together for Ernest and he, like, he, it's the understatement of the century when he goes, boy, Helen, I think you should leave right away. I see a very bad situation developing. <laughs> and then, and then uh, right, two seconds later, Madeline walks in and says, you brought this on yourself and, like, shoots the hole through her. <laughs> and uh, probably my runner-up quote comes two seconds later when he's like she's dead and she goes really she is oh these are the moments that make life worth living (laughs) I
2: love that one
1: (laughs) so um, it's kind of a pairing all done in the same scene but uh, so that is uh, my favorite quote of the movie we've come around time to give this movie a rating on a five star scale DJ DJ what do you give Death Becomes Her?
2: I have to give it a five because I used my little my little cop-out car when I couldn't choose. So
1: it's hard. It's going to be a five. It's hard when you can't change anything. Uh, Brian, what do you rate this movie on a five-star scale?
0: I'll go a solid four. I could definitely see it growing on me. Um, but yeah, you know, on rewatch, I'll give it a solid four.
1: My first watch, I was Where You Are, Brian, but then I enjoyed it more the second time. And so now I'm up to a 4.5. And the fact that I can enjoy sitting here talking as much as I am, laughing and smiling as much as I am, I see the room. I, like I said, I, this is a movie I would like to own, and uh, there's potential to grow uh, even more as the subtleties come out. But my current ranking is a four point five. I really enjoyed this. Brian, you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Let's do it. Next time we're going back to the '80s. You ready to get? Do you ready to get to another level of retro? We've been doing a lot of '90s movies. It's time to go back to the '80s.
0: Well, you tried to with this one.
1: uh, I'm probably going to leave that in now. (laughs) (laughs) um, (laughs) Option one. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids from 1989. A scientist father of two teenage kids accidentally shrinks his two and two other neighborhood teens to the size of insects. Now the teens must fight their diminished dangers as their father searches for them. Option two. Flash Gordon from 1980. A football player and his friends travel to the planet Mongo to find themselves fighting the tyranny of the Ming and the merciless to save Earth. Option three. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures from 1989. Two seemingly dumb teens set off on a quest to prepare for the ultimate historical presentation with the help of a time machine.
0: I love Flash Gordon in such a campy, campy way, but I'm going to go with Bill and Ted on this one just because that one's going to be way too much fun to talk about.
1: Excellent! All right. Well, thank you so much, DJ, for coming on the show. We really appreciate having you Thanks for having me back. And Brian, as always, it's been fun.
0: Aw, cheers, man. We had a great night.
1: Yep. And so... Thank you, everybody, for listening. All the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you thought of Death Becomes Her. Subscribe, rate, and review to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podcasts, or sorry, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Email us at RetroMovieRoundtable at yahoo.com if you want to talk to us further or if you want to be on the show. As always, thank you for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Brian?
0: Mass genocide is the most exhausting activity one can engage in. Next to Soxer.